0: Hello, my fellow victims of jurisprudential whims. In light of the leaked Supreme Court decision from Justice Alito, which suggests with upwards of 90% certainty that the Supreme Court in its current absurd composition will be overturning Roe v. Wade— 50-plus-year-old precedent that has been protecting women for just as long in this country, I thought that I would re-edit these video episodes that I did back when the court started considering this move roughly seven months ago. Uh, Everything is in gestational terms in my brain now, oh my god. In any case, since then we saw this coming, but for some reason... I was just as shocked and wounded as many of us were by this really unprecedented leak, no pun intended. Um, So, here are two parts of an episode on reproductive health, abortion rights, the legal history and legal basis, constitutionality, jurisprudential body of work, um, related rights, some of the medical realities. It's in parts one and two, but this is all in anticipation of a stream that I'm doing with Jackie Zabrowski and Dr. Jordan on Tuesday, the 17th. And the details are going to be on Instagram or on Jackie's Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv/slash oh no, it's Jackie. And that will be at 8 p.m. Pacific time, so 11 if you're on the East Coast, and you can figure out anywhere in between. So, without further ado, here is part two of the Repro episodes. In the last half here, we're going to rattle through the the legal history, the legal basis, um, and the lamentable legal present of the right to bodily integrity and the right to choose. And I say it not specifically as the right to abortion, because there are so many inextricably linked rights that really is kind of... It's a bunch of dominoes, and once you start just polarizing it with weird religious sexist morality politics, uh, it's it's hard to draw a line of, of where that domino chain will stop. So, um, where do we start here? So, we'll talk a little bit about natural rights in the founders, framers of the Constitution, founders of the country, just lay out a bit of a framework that I think is very important um, of what they expected to be protected even without enumeration in the Constitution. So I'm gonna to try to condense the, why this is important. So the the Constitution has the series of amendments, right? Um, The first 10 are the Bill of Rights. They're the super important ones, like speech, religion, uh, defending yourself from the government in an organized militia, um, search and seizure, things like that. We added on to that, obviously, amendments as time went on. 14th, for example, has the Equal Protection Clause, and it also has um, one of two due process clauses. The 14th is the one that talks about the states, the fifth talks about um, the federal government not being able to deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that one's going to come back. But in that listing of amendments, there's this big conflict, which you may or may not have heard of back in history class, Um I honestly had to get taught and retaught so many times what the Federalists and Anti Federalists were about. But for this context, they some really wanted to list out a lot in the document. So, really ensure and their ideal way of ensuring that the government can't intervene on certain rights and that nothing is unprotected, is by enumerating. So basically listing them out. Say that you're allowed to blank, you're allowed to blank, you're allowed to blank. So that anybody in the future won't have a question. The problem with that, and the spoiler alert is that there's no great answer to this debate. The problem with that is what if you forget one? And what if you forget one and you've said that you've listed all of them? Then it's a real problem because then anybody in the future can say Look, this is what they gave us as the intended list of all the freedoms protected, and it's not on here. So what they did, and what many of us forget now, is they struck a compromise. They agreed that they weren't going to list everything um, because that was just impractical and it was kind of dangerous for the reason that we laid out. Um, They would list some really important ones that are broad and interpretable and flexible with time, and they would also list some catch-all provisions to show some intent to pick up other rights that may be implied from, may be necessary to execute the the protection of the other rights. Um, There's something called the Necessary and Proper Clause, for example. And that says that on top of all the things that the amendments protect, you also have any powers that are required or Congress has any powers that are required to exercise those powers that we listed. Because a lot of it is like what the, it's both listing rights, but it's also what the federal government, what respective branches, what states can and can't do in terms of, of limiting or regulating those rights. Um, and what their their kind of field of power is. Um, police is, is a state thing, for example, and interstate and international commerce is legislative. So, that sort of thing. So, all this to say, we're getting kind of far from abortion, stay with me, I promise. And this will honestly help interpret so many things. It'll put you leagues ahead of, like, half the legal scholars on, on at least one side of the aisle. So. Um, and I gotta thank my my late dad for this because he was a constitutional scholar who specialized in um uh, debunking the whole school of thought of original intent with um oodles of research. So natural rights were one of the things, uh, a broad category within which there were a bunch of rights, but one of the hotly debated categories, because these are the rights that like I want to say God-given, but without the God piece. That the framers, a lot of them coming from philosophis- philosophical schools of thought, that it's akin to the idea of human rights, right? Like, just being born into this world, being born as a human, um, you are endowed with certain inalienable rights, as, as the preamble says. So there are certain things that the government doesn't grant to you and the government can't take away but it's kind of the idea like we can enumerate this because it's not the government that gives this to you in the first place. You get it just by existing. Um, so a lot of things in that category I have a long list of essentially all the framers and, and citations of all the framers referencing how important they found this field of natural rights. Both that those those are such pivotal rights they're so so fundamental and important, and they're also really difficult to enumerate, they became a big sticking point so do we do we start trying to list them? Um, do we even kind of is it even our right to list them if they're granted by just nature of being a human? Um, do we need to if they're so inherent to existing um Maybe they're like trivial and nobody will ever question them, especially assuming that society will progress and not regress. So basically all the founders, sites to come in this separate link, um, valued natural rights. And they actually debated, sites for these to come as well, whether to include certain natural rights that fall into that category in enumeration um, as part of this compromise that they struck, to write some and then have catch-alls for others, but not write all of them and not claim to write all of them. Some of those, and this is where we'll see the connection here, some of those were privacy, bodily integrity, and the right to marriage and family. And ultimately, the, the debate landed on they exist paramount to positive law, to man-made law. And it's so important to preserve them, but also things like the right to bury the dead or to walk around, nobody's going to question them. So let's not. Some state constitutions actually debated putting those things in, which kind of goes to show the insight of the time was we're thinking about bodily integrity, marriage, privacy, things like that. so that takes us to current interpretations of the Constitution, what it included, um, what was kind of under this umbrella of rights as we were given to interpret through the years that was meant to live with us and support the progress of society with the inclusion and you know, implicit existence of these natural rights and their protection. Are you still with me? Okay, <laughs> so the the specific chain of cases that ended up leading to Roe v. Wade, which was in 1973, crazy, 50-plus years ago now, and we're still having the conversation, with fewer protections before this than Roe even provided. So, oh my God, we're moving backwards on like a long-term basis. But the cases that this came out of started with the right to contraception. So there are two cases called um, Eisenstadt and Griswold. And there are two different issues, but very similar. It was basically like some place had outlawed contraceptives and some other place had outlawed contraceptives for unmarried people. So one was like, um, the more important one was putting together this right to privacy and right to decide if you want to get pregnant, sexual choices in the home. And the decision for that case was great because it put together penumbras, which is its shadows. So it's kind of like the umbrella shadows created by this constellation, to mix my metaphors, of rights that are secured in the Constitution. And they listed things like that right to life and liberty without uh, deprivation from the government without due process and um, search and seizure protection. So it's like we can't invade your person or physical privacy without good cause and a basis for that. And even the Third Amendment right to not be forced to have soldiers in the home. Um, it's like, okay, so this is that can be construed to bedroom. Um, And then other things that could be like the Equal Protection Clause, liberty again, these sort of fundamental rights that had been toyed with that imply the right to marriage and family and to make those choices or not make those choices. And you can't have one without the other. So if you have a right to start a family, you have to have a right to not start a family. You can't have it only one way, um, at least not logically. But so this kind of shows you where the constitutional protections started. And it also, as a side note, is kind of scary because it shows you the inverse domino chain that can fall, that like, these protections started with protection of contraceptive rights, and now we're going backwards. Um, That is the next place that would fall. Uh, Not to be alarmist, because it's not alarmist, it is literally true. (sighs) So from there, we eventually came to Casey and what Casey relied on is this 14th amendment due process liberty interest and that the amorphous interest that everybody has protected by the 14th amendment, um, to have their liberty protected and that's an undefined concept. And so if not privacy and bodily integrity, then what, um, And that the government essentially can't deprive people of that arbitrarily and that it is put on a pedestal. So that is the right that ultimately Roe uses. It's this, they call it substantive due process because the procedural piece is like, okay, what process does the government owe you if they're going to take away one of those rights? The substance, the substantive piece is this liberty interest in this case. It can also be life or property, but those are easier to define. The government can't kill you or take your property without a legal proceeding or good cause. Um, But the liberty piece, what the hell does that mean? Um, Probably basic freedoms, bodily integrity, privacy, things that we might otherwise call natural rights. So that was the basis for Roe. And for Roe deciding in 1973 that um, the... I think the way that they did it was by trimester. So they had states can't infringe on it in the first trimester. Second, they can a little bit. And third, they can more so. Um, And even that is like, all right. Because medicine, remember, handles all procedures all the time just fine. That there are guidelines laid out within the profession that protect from arbitrary, abusive um, you know, procedures that are disrespectful of life or, I mean, you can't be a physician without taking the Hippocratic Oath. So we don't need extra protections unless we're making a statement. And we don't have them for other procedures. It's not like wisdom tooth removal has to have extra state oversight of the medical profession. Um, so it's really just to make some point. But... They did argue that the state has an interest in protecting women's health, was their their argument. And in the interest of women's health, they are allowed to regulate abortion, which is another fallacy that we'll address at the end, um, the whole women's health argument. But um, so they, they did it that way, and the one thing that we did end up losing later that Roe put in place for a little while was that it was a fundamental right. This bodily integrity and right to choose whether to bear a child is a fundamental right. And in Supreme Court jurisprudence, constitutional interpretation, there's a hierarchy of what somebody challenging certain types of rights on this hierarchy um, has to show if they want to infringe on it. So a state doesn't need as good an argument kind of if it's just a rational basis review right which is a a lower tier um there's this kind of intermediate where a state has to show a little bit more and then there's this fundamental right which as the name suggests is like this is super important bodily integrity privacy makes sense um that the it's what's called strict scrutiny if a state wants to legislate anything that steps on that right. So they have to show really good cause, they have to bring better evidence, they have to show how compelling that interest is to the state, and why the state within its powers has to exercise that toe-stepping, and why in that balance the need that the state has comes out higher than a fundamental right, which is pretty weighty. So Casey in 1992, again like the time that passes between these when we should be going forward and we end up going backward um, was the first blow to that level of protection because it took away the fundamental right conception. I'm going to keep accidentally making, making that pun, but, um, but ultimately given that it was a challenge to Roe v. Wade protecting abortion at all, it was a, a net positive cause it, it didn't knock Roe down. Um, so that's what actually has been the standard that we've been working on till now or till recently. Uh, people say a lot like overturning ROE, but technically it's, it's overturning Casey because Casey is what has been the governing standard. Um, Casey used, instead of the trimester approach for when a state can limit it, it used viability, which is like really medically unclear And even legally, and like they don't define it and that's going to change with time too, because as medicine gets better and as image it like it changes, but it's not the worst thing in the world given that we're already in this weird territory of like Supreme court pretending to be medical professionals. And so it said that once the fetus is viable, so once it can live outside the womb, which again, it's it's all about percentages. It's like what what are the chances that it'll survive if it were taken away from the mother, and made its own person? Right now, which it, I think is is a fair way to, as a layperson, not a medical professional, which is a flaw in and of itself. It's a fair way to look at it because it's like, is this an extension of the mother's body or is it potentially something that can live on its own? but is not yet. Um, but the capacity is there. So that is the line that Casey drew for when a state is allowed to regulate it. And regulate doesn't mean they have to, but they're allowed to. So Texas would take that to the full extent that they can. Um, New York, maybe not so much, but they can't mess with it before viability. States can't do anything. And so what? what is the line for doing something versus doing something permissible like what is too much any laws can't place under the casey standard i'm not saying that's in a way that makes sense laws that addressed access to abortion could not place an undue burden on the woman seeking an abortion or her procurement of an abortion What does that mean? Well, that has been what the intervening like 30 years of jurisprudence has been fighting out. So things like when I mentioned before those like hallway width things that really had nothing to do with women's health were just designed to make it harder for places to get funding and for more to exist and thus for women to access it. Um, Ultimately, the test that would come to the courts is not about like, why are you really doing this? But it's about how burdensome the law is to women and if it's an undue burden which like many legal standards like you can't define every circumstance when you write a law or write a decision to a case so it's just about interpretation with the guidance that you have best case scenario worst case scenario that's always kind of how it's going to work so undue burden has has been an interpretable standard that fluctuates depending on the politics of the court since then. Um, Until now, which we've reached a whole new level of boldness, and now we're just going to throw that out the window. So that's like, if you want to comply with Casey and not fully get rid of Casey and Roe and the protections for abortion, you do this kind of, all right, well, it's not an undue burden, it's just a protection for women's health. Um, now it's just like, we don't give a fuck. We want Roe out of there. Um, Roe and Casey. So now, um, the, the Texas law that we discussed before, such as it is, um, a short version. And I think that this is fine. The, the nonsense of like procedural stuff with the court, I think matters less than the, final word. So basically there was a lawsuit to enjoin, to stop the Texas law from going into effect. So there's this like period between when a law passes and when it goes into effect. In that period between the Texas law being passed and the date that it's supposed to actually start governing, um, people sued saying that it violated Roe. And those cases made their way up to the Supreme Court and, you know, up through the federal courts. And the first thing that we probably all heard about or that you heard about on social media and on the news was the date that the Texas law actually went into effect. And by that date, the Supreme Court had not decided to do anything. So they hadn't stayed the law. They hadn't prevented it or delayed it from actually happening. And they also hadn't... um, They should have done that either way if they wanted to protect roe and casey but on top of that if they wanted to have a hearing on it and re-litigate the right to choose and potentially they still could have hacked away at the right but it was at least it would have at least given the illusion of like we're gonna take this seriously Um, then they could have stayed it and said that we're going to put this on for oral argument on this date, and it stayed until then. They didn't do either one. So that was the first date that the media really, you know, blew up and said, wow, we've been waiting, waiting, waiting for what they would do before this law went into effect, and they're not going to do anything. They're just going to let it happen. So basically, they're going to let this law that violates Roe and Casey, that violates this right, under Supreme Court precedent, they're going to let it happen and they know what they're doing. Eventually they did like a shadow docket and basically like wrote a secret, super uh, perfunctory, no oral argument opinion that did a similar thing and allowed it to stay in place. And also just like really evasive. Um, And obviously the, the, more liberal-slash-rational justices wrote dissents, and... But we can't really win, because one seat has been stolen from a Democratic president, um, arguably two. The third one is a rapist. (laughs) There's also an older one who's a sexual assaulter, so it's like... I'm the biggest defender in a relative sense of the Supreme Court because they are the least corrupted and corruptible branch, in my opinion. And as federal defenders of the Constitution, I, as a Constitution fan, gotta put my weight somewhere and I'm pretty much done, man, I don't, whatever. Um, for the last like 15 minutes or so, I'm gonna go through this quick uh, debunking fallacies and misconceptions series because there's a lot of nonsense out there and let's just like knock it the fuck out with some quick and dirty facts. So the first one is this women's health bullshit. Um, Getting an abortion is safer than a wisdom tooth removal. The ones that occur in the first trimester, which remember this is 90 plus percent of all abortions that occur, Safer Than Wisdom tooth removal, it's an outpatient procedure, like I was describing I had. You're only locally anesthetized, so not even full general anesthesia that makes you go under. The pills, obviously even safer than that, you can do it at home. There is no evidence or even arguments about how abortion bans actually support women's health. There's, I think it's because there, there is no medical support for those arguments for them to even troll for. In fact, the AMA, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, all these medical associations are pro-choice, and so that should speak for itself. Um, The inverse, obviously, is that there is greater health risk to pregnancy, even in the best circumstances, even in a wanted case, Uh, adding to that the psychological risks of somebody who doesn't want to be giving birth, being forced to go through something that is incredibly traumatic on the body. Childbirth, obviously, again, best case. Sometimes they have to cut you from your vagina to your asshole. So, if you don't want to go through this, this is extremely invasive. Talking about bodily integrity and right to privacy, this is essentially a parasitic invasion being forced on your body. So those are some pretty serious health risks, um, let alone the risks that a child has in a home that either can't financially provide for them, which means food, shelter, things like that, and psychologically. If you are born to parents that do not want to be parents, except that there is this law preventing them from not being parents, um, that's going to be a very different upbringing, psychologically. And I say this as a kid who was an accident, but who was chosen. So, I don't cast any aspersions on people who do make that choice, obviously. But it's different if you don't want the child, and yet you are forced to have and raise it. Don't get me started on the adoption foster care thing. Those systems are saturated, and it's not a reasonable solution if you want anything positive for, um... Yeah. So that, like, Forcing somebody to bear a child two-term and then being like, but adoption, that's not really a great answer because we already are at our maximum there and those kids aren't getting homes, let alone if they are non-infants, if they're minority kids, if they have disabilities. So yeah. Okay. Last thing on the health front, which is a great stat to have on hand, Um, it is, it has such a low mortality rate. In 2012, which is the last year I could find stats for, there were 600,000 reported abortions in the United States. There were four abortion-related deaths. So that is roughly .0007% mortality. You can compare that with appendectomy mortality rates for the same year, which is 1%, which is still really low. It's incredibly low. But 0.0007% mortality rate for abortion. So. Bye. Alright, uh... Bodily autonomy and choice standards in other issues. So, you may have heard a lot of these things, I think that this has been... I hate Twitter, and I think that discourse on Twitter is, is forced to be reductive and angry. But one thing that has been good is is a lot of these, like, pat arguments going around. Um, Organ donation, you absolutely need consent from the host before you take their body parts, even if it's to save a fully-fledged child who will die without the organ. So if you think about the mother being forced to act as host to a fetus that has not even reached that stage of development, um, it's not a comparable standard that's being applied to those two different uh, circumstances. Think of things like palliative and hospice care, which is sometimes designed to ease people into death to prevent their suffering. If life is sanctified in a non-religious governmental sense, um, above all else, above people's well-being, then why do we allow this as a more merciful option for, again, fully-fledged people who are outside the womb and and certainly have all their um, faculties and development done. Um, The masks and vaccine arguments, obviously, the like right to choose. It's remarkable to be having these two conversations at the same time and for it not to be as obvious as it is how much bullshit there is on one side of the argument. Really on both sides, but how it's also hypocritical um you get nothing good out of it and also parents choice in so many issues is put on a pedestal above children's choice even if it messes with kids well-being Uh, like think of vaccines in general that parents can decide not to have their children vaccinated because of the parents beliefs it's not about the child's well-being it's not about the child's choice um but the parents make that call and education, health, school, like, a lot of those choices, religion imposing and and the choices that stem, stem from that, you're allowed to get your child's ears pierced before they are even like conscious or can hold their head up. So we value parents' choice above children's choice in many occasions when the children are actually fully formed humans who are outside the womb. So especially pre-viability, first trimester, when so many of these take place, why is that a time when parents' choice does not matter? And that's when the child actually does not have the brain to make a choice to combat it. So it's like, I don't... This brings us to the biggest nonsense of them all, which like, I'm attacking all these with logic, but can you? Ultimately, these have to come to some sort of record, whether it be the court, the legislature, so that I hope and think that there is some point to making arguments against it because there are enough things that will force people's hand if it gets too obvious and they don't want to look stupid. So it's really about like weight of opinion and record and stupidity. Those are our weapons. So the pro-life fallacy. First of all, I would caution everybody to not use pro-life, don't play into their hand, don't adopt their rhetoric, say anti-choice, because they're not pro-life. We all know this, I think, but just to, you know, for the proverbial record, healthcare, education, housing, childcare, um, unemployment funding for both parent and child, once that child exists are not guaranteed, in fact, they're scorned by the party that tends to advocate for anti-choice legislation. So, and that's to say nothing of the foreign policy nonsense that we've heard recently. Um, Do we care about mothers and children in other countries? I guess only when it's Afghanistan for a hot second, when we can be mad about Biden, even though GW Bush started this war and Reagan and. H.W. Bush and Trump all contributed. Anyways, um, one argument that is, I I don't really know what its point is, um, is that abortion is always legal for wealthy women. It feels like a divide and conquer strategy because unless you're talking about like the literal point zero zero one percent that like can theoretically always pay to evade the law that's not true and i say this because i am a middle class comfortable middle to upper class woman and i am not confident you know i'm from arizona and when i am staying there i'm you know, back and forth on whether I'll move back there. And I am not confident that I am protected. And I would say the same of a lot of the women I know across classes. And so does it affect and hurt women in lower-income communities more so? Absolutely. Um, That this doesn't even touch that because it, yes, absolutely it's true because everything is worse. Everything like healthcare funding, education funding, housing, it's all those things that aren't funded after the, the birth happens. Um, it goes double for people who don't have that extra income to pad it. But in terms of the right and access, I don't get the argument because it's not true and what is the point? Unless it's to divide and? In conquer and that's something that the left has a a lot of trouble doing because they do it all the time just to like eat their own to feel superior I don't know what it's about or it's a weird very misguided way to make the issue palatable to people who don't care about women's issues which I don't think is a good strategy but I I could see like the white boy podcast left not really caring about women, but caring about low income because it's a, it's a more, they can yell at those things and they can break stuff and you can't really, uh, a pro-choice sort of. Does that make sense? Um, in any case, it's not an accurate argument and I don't know what purpose it serves. Um, because we can highlight the difficulties on low-income and communities of color without dividing the group of women. Um, it doesn't, like, you don't need one for the other. They're not mutually exclusive. So, um, the arguments about reducing the incidence I don't love and I would urge people not to participate in, where it's like, well, if you don't like abortion, you should, um increase access to contraceptives. That is statistically true, and I think that access to contraceptives, kind of similar to the last argument. I think that making that point is always great. We can do it without saying anything about abortion, but when we juxtapose it with the abortion argument, it implicitly lends credence to the idea that it is bad to get an abortion, and that that is an okay stance to have. Uh, It's like the safe, legal, and rare platform for abortions. Like why does it have to be rare if it's not murder, if it is totally okay, totally legitimate healthcare, full stop. Um, so just be careful of that kind of rhetoric. Uh, it accepts the negative framing, I think, that other people have created for the issue. Um, the last thing is religion. Um, Abortion is not in the Bible. It's not even kind of in the Bible. There's like one passage that says, I knew you when you were formed in the womb or something in a very conceptual, oh God, I keep using that word, but in a very metaphorical sounding way. And it's not like, I knew you in the first trimester when you were in my womb as a fetus. It's more like I knew I loved you before I met you kind of stuff. But even if it were, most religions, including the Judeo piece of Judeo-Christian, so even if we were a religious country and didn't have a First Amendment that develops that wall of separation between church and state, um, it's really only modern Catholicism that has taken issue with abortion in terms of, of institutionalized religion. And that's not textual. So. Stop it. What now? Uh, I'm gonna add a a link and list of places to give, messages to tout, um, places to go and and things to yell about, places to yell. I don't know. If you want to call your representatives to push them to advocate for that because they are in Congress, that's a great idea too. Make noise, please. Um, Especially men. I, I don't mind sharing my story, but why is it that to keep this protection that's 50-plus years old and precedent, I have to keep gutting myself. Um, which again, like, it's not fair to fully argue that, but women have to keep sharing their stories to be like, hey, we're still people, hey, remember this is a real thing that happens to real people, please care about our basic human rights. So... Please say things. Alright, also, my last tip, which I didn't come up with, but I forget who did, but... Get a bunch of Plan B pills now, put them in your fridge. I think they have like a two year shelf life. Things tend to have a longer shelf life if they're in the fridge because it's temperature controlled. They're safe and effective for like the first three days. I mean, they're safe, period, but they're effective for like the first three days. Read the packaging. It's a great alternative um, to if you know you have unprotected sex and you have it on hand, you're more likely to use the Plan B pills. So do that now. That's what I'm doing. Otherwise, fuck all man, let's take a nap.